Well, good evening. Welcome back to our series of studies through the book of Esther. Tonight, we're going to be studying chapter 2. We'll be starting chapter 2, and we'll be studying verses 1 through 8. But before we get started there, I just want to do a quick review of what we learned in chapter 1. Through a detailed look in chapter 1 at two feasts, or what we would refer to as big parties that King Ahasuerus hosted, we began to learn a little bit about what kind of man this king was and what kind of man he wasn't. He was the, um, the wealthiest, the most powerful man in the known world at the time. But what we found out is that he lacked something very, very important for a man in his position. He lacked the acknowledgement that God was the source of his high position, the source of his power, the source of his wealth. We also took a detailed look at one particular interaction that the king had with his wife, Queen Vashti. Uh, The king had, during the course of one of his feasts, he had sent word for his wife and commanded her to come before him and his guests. And this was not to honor her as his beautiful and beloved wife, but really to display her, to display her the way like a spoiled child shows off a prized toy to his buddies. And Vashti refused, and when she refused... The king became angry. He became enraged, so enraged that what he did that night was he dethroned her and banished her from ever again being in his presence. So tonight we're moving on. We're moving into chapter 2. Like I said, we're going to be studying verses 1 through 8. And this passage includes two main sections. Verses 1 through 4, we'll see the young men who attend the king. They devise a plan, and the plan is to please their king and to replace Queen Vashti. Then in verses 5 through 8, we'll see Esther along with all of the beautiful young virgins throughout the entire Persian Empire, taken in to the king's palace. So let's read together Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, and then we'll, we'll dig into our study. It says, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti, and what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman 
who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Okay, verse 1 says, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had been abated, or had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, this phrase, after these things, it's a common phrase, and it, it commonly indicates that an unspecified but, but a significant period of time has passed. In this case, what we're talking about is the time that had passed since the events of chapter 1. Now, although the text doesn't specify specifically or particularly exactly how much time has passed, we can safely deduce that it's been about three years. See, in chapter 1, we're told that the events of chapter 1 took place in the third year of the king's reign. Then in chapter 2, verse 16, it states that Esther was presented to the king in the seventh year of his reign, four years later. Okay? And then one other fact that we need to consider, we're not going to develop this tonight, but in our next study, chapter 2, verse 12, tells us that Esther spent one year in the harem before being presented to the king. So that four-year span, you take back that one year, leaves us with three years between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. So it's, it's been about three years. And the, the text tells us that at this time, at this point, that, that uh, King Ahasuerus was no longer angry. Hey, great, good for him, right? <laughs> now, the text says specifically that his anger had abated. It's an interesting word that we've translated to abated. In the original language, it, it literally means to go down or subside as the water of the ocean subsides after a storm. And you know how the ocean swells during a storm? And then after the storm, it, it, it goes back down. It abates. This is the same word, that's, the same Hebrew word, that's used in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, to describe the receding 
of the floodwaters in Noah's day. I think what this is, it's a subtle, very subtle word picture to remind us of just how angry the king was at that time. We studied that in detail in uh, chapter 1, how enraged the king was at Vashti's refusal to come when he called her. Now, I don't think, it's been three years, right? I don't think that, that the king had lived for these three years in that state of anger, in that enraged state of anger. In fact, I believe, I'm convinced that the majority of that time, he wasn't thinking much about Vashti at all. I mean, think about this. First off, to live for three years in that type of anger, that type of enraged anger, it would, it would imply, clearly imply, that he was thinking about Queen Vashti on a, on a regular basis, on a very regular basis, to be that enraged on a constant basis for three years. But look at the last part of verse 1. It says that at this point, he remembered Vashti. Now, the original word that's translated here, remember, it literally means to consciously think about what you have not been thinking about, to purposefully bring to the forefront, bring something to the forefront of your thoughts, indicating that she was not at the forefront of his mind or at the center of his thoughts all during this time. Now, this also doesn't mean that the king had literally, completely and entirely forgotten that Vashti existed or what she had done. And then he suddenly, after three years, remembered her. Doesn't mean that. I interpret this to mean that after three years, in the absence of giving her much thought for those three years, at this particular point in time, he thought about her. He thought about her. And I don't think that this was a random thought or memory of Vashti that just happened to come to his mind. I am convinced that the Lord specifically, intentionally, and purposefully prompted this remembrance, this thought in the king's mind, and that he did so to serve his purpose and plan to bring Esther onto the scene at this particular time. Now, some commentators, good commentators, speculate that the king, that what verse 1 is all about is that the king felt remorse at this point for dethroning Vashti, for what he had done. Well, I don't see anything explicit within the text that would indicate this. The text simply says he remembered her, he remembered what she had done, and he remembered what had been done to her. If you combine that with the fact that there's 
There's just nothing about the king's personality or character that would lead us to the conclusion that he felt remorse at all. I, I just, I don't, I don't buy that view. I don't agree with that. Now, I'll say this. It's, it's possible, it's mathematically possible that he missed her in a physical sense. Remember, Vashti was very beautiful. But we have to keep in mind that the king had at his disposal an entire harem of women. We don't know how many, but there were many, 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 many. So I'm convinced that the king had not been thinking much about Vashti until this moment in time and that the Lord had prompted his thoughts. And then finally, it's likely that the thoughts of Vashti that the Lord had given the king prompted him to speak to those young men attending him about these thoughts that he, were, that he was having. And that compelled them to devise this plan that they presented to the king. So let's look at their plan. Verses 2 and 3. It says, Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. So the young men mentioned here may or may not have been the same young men from chapter 1, verse 14, who suggested the decree to dethrone Queen Vashti in the first place. We're not told. It's been three years. They could have been a different group of men, young men, or they could have been the same. But whether they, they were the same or different, these guys clearly understood the king, and they knew his sensual appetite. They were, their responsibility was that if the king was in any way agitated, bothered, troubled, upset, anything, it was their responsibility to soothe him, to calm him down, to give him what he wanted, to make sure that he was happy. And nothing would soothe the king better than fresh additions to his harem. It's just the kind of man he was. But there, I'm convinced there's more at work here than just soothing the king. If you remember back from chapter 1, when Mamukin advised the king to issue a decree that Vashti would never again come before the king, he included a very important follow-up detail in getting rid of Vashti. Chapter 1, verse 9, the very end of verse, uh, excuse me, verse 19, the very end of verse 19, it says, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So the suggestion here wasn't just to get rid of Vashti, 
but to get rid of her and replace her. Now, I commented in some detail when we studied that verse that among other things I presented at the time, that this also was demonstrating God's sovereignty in the circumstance. God was at work then. He's still at work now. God's at work behind the scenes. See, their suggestion here in chapter 2, their suggestion to the king, was the means of bringing that follow-up detail to fruition. Again, reminding us, demonstrating for us God's sovereignty in the circumstances. So, an official search and seizure was begun. Officials were appointed in all of the provinces, all throughout uh, Persia, to gather all of the beautiful young virgins throughout the kingdom, throughout Persia, and bring them to the citadel, bring them to the king. Now, again, there's, there's some commentators, and, and you know, when I, when I make these comments, I, I try my best only to read from good, solid commentators, but you know, I'm not going to agree with everything that I read from them. There are some who suggest that this was a, like a, a, a voluntary gathering of young girls, that it was a type of a lottery almost, that all of these young women were approached and simply given an opportunity. They were given a choice, an option to enter the lottery if they wanted to and have a chance at becoming queen. Well, to me, it's very clear. The text indicates otherwise. The, the word translated here that we've translated gather, it literally means to collect, to grasp, to seize, or to assemble. The word, it just doesn't sound like it contains any idea of choice here. If you are grasping something, you're not giving that something a choice to be grasped or not. It's, it's, it's a forceful word. It doesn't sound to me at all like officers went around offering young girls a chance at royalty. What they did was they searched their provinces and they seized these young girls. There was no choice in the matter. These girls were taken. They were taken from their homes. They were taken from their families. They were taken from their lives. They were corralled together and taken to the capital city for the king. Now, they were taken to a particular section of the king's palace where all of his, all the king's women lived. We call that his harem. Now, these new recruits, they spent the first year, the next year, segregated, separate from the rest of the women in the harem. They were being prepared in every way, in every way possible, every way imaginable, to be presented to the king. They were given the finest food 
the finest drink available in all the empire. They were given and treated to all of the finest cosmetics, skin treatments, all of that kind of stuff of the day. All of this was done under the custody, under the direction, under the protection of the king's eunuch, Haggai. Haggai had a really important position in the king's palace. He was responsible to transform these young girls from whatever station in life they were before. And that was probably a broad spectrum of where they came from. He was to transform them and make each one of them totally and completely presentable in every way to the king. He was responsible to keep track of them and to keep them on track. If any of them were were not cooperating, that just wasn't an excuse that was going to cut it with the king at the end of the year. Haggai was responsible. So he had to make it happen. He was also responsible to protect them at all times from any other men in the capital city. Uh, and, and this isn't an, uh, uh, a, um, an exhaustive list of his responsibility, but it's a good, good solid list. He was given one year to accomplish all of this. And all this was at the suggestion of the young men who attended the king. And then these, these young men, they conclude their suggestion in verse 4. It says, and let the young woman, the one young woman who pleases the king, be queen instead of Vashti. And then it says, this pleased the king. And he did so. So all of this is being presented to the king as he's standing there listening to all of this. And then at the end, I like that idea. And so he did it. Now I want to spend just a moment and uh, so that we, uh, we all understand. I want to describe the women who comprised the king's harem. They lived a life that was nothing short of slavery. Now, they weren't sub- subjected to forced labor. They weren't beaten. They weren't, uh, you know, uh, 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 forced to live in in less than desirable circumstances. In fact, they lived in the finest accommodations, the finest surroundings in the known world at the time. I mean, they were they were in the the, the capital city in the king's palace, and they were the king's women. They had it all. They were never in any type of physical want. They had the best food, the finest clothing. They were pampered in every way. They had their every need taken care of. But they were the property of the king. They were essentially... His living playthings. Their only purpose in life was to amuse and please the king and satisfy his 
every sensual desire. And that was whenever he called on them to do so. That was their life. They had no hope of ever having a life of their own, of marrying, of having children, of having any type of a normal life. These women, they had a lonely existence within a life of luxury. The life into which these gathered young girls were entering, it all began with one full year of primping and preparation. We're not going to get into all the details tonight. That's for the next study. But just know that this first year was intense in preparing them for the king. And the year, that one year, it culminated for each of these girls on the fateful night that she was summoned to spend the night with the king. Then the next morning, she was escorted to her new dwelling and her new life, the king's harem, what I just described. Now, of course, in this group of young girls, there was going to be one exception. And that one exception would be the girl who the king happened to enjoy the most. The one that he just happened to like more than the rest of them. This girl would be selected solely at the king's discretion, solely at his whim. And this one girl, she would be made queen. All the rest would simply go into his collection. And then we're told that this pleased the king. Now think about that for a moment. This pleased the king. How can one human being take this kind of pleasure in, without exaggeration here, abusing and causing such misery in the lives of so many other human beings? Think about it. This action of the king's, it affected each one of these girls, right? But it also affected each girl's family and all of her friends, everyone she was associated with from whom she was taken. It's a horrible thing if you stop and think about this. As horrible and depraved as this is, understand that this is merely one expression of the depth of depravity that sin has on all the world. And I think that's what we're supposed to see here. We're meant to see that. So the next question then would be, what are we to do with this? Are we meant, does the Lord mean for us to just read this and move on? Just read it as part of the story and move on? Not giving it another thought? I don't think so. I believe that we're meant to reflect on this. I think that we're meant to reflect on it and then reflect on and remember that we have hope in our God. 
regardless of our circumstances. I think that we too often succumb to feelings of being under the control of an evil and corrupt government, probably more so today than ever before in any of our lives, right? But the thing is, in reality, this is the farthest thing from the truth. The truth of the matter is that those in power, those who make decisions today in the highest places of government, highest places of finance, they are all, each and every one of them, they are all actually under the control of the great and sovereign Lord and King whom we serve. It's, it's an interesting thing, sometimes a difficult thing to think about that. But without being the author or originator of their sin and their evil, and I know that there is plenty of it, but without being the author or originator of that sin and evil, God sovereignly directs their decisions, as he did so with King Ahasuerus. He sovereignly directs their decisions that accomplishes his purposes, his kingdom purposes in history. The Lord, we, we need to always remember that the Lord is ruling and reigning on his throne. He was in the days of Esther, and he is right now. And he has been ever since, and he always will be. No decision made in all the earth can thwart his purpose. In this, we can and must take comfort regardless of how difficult or unwanted our circumstances may be at any given time. Remember these words of Charles Spurgeon. I quote, There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. End quote. Praise God, he is in control. Ahasuerus wasn't in control. Our government isn't in control. Our God is in control. Now, with all of this said, the stage is now set for the emergence of Esther. Verses 5 and 6. It says, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of of Babylon, had carried away. So here we're now introduced to Mordecai. He's immediately identified as a Jew, but we need to keep in mind that at this point in the story, the king and all of the people of Susa, they did not know that Mordecai, they didn't know that Esther were Jewish. They didn't know they were related either. But we, the readers, were given this information to serve 
God's purpose. Looking at Mordecai's lineage, going all the way back to the Babylonian captivity of the Jews, it gives us pause to again consider the sovereignty of God and his activity in and throughout the book of Esther. I would imagine that when Kish, that is Mordecai's great-grandfather, when he was taken captive and carried away to Babylon, I'm, I'm making some presumptions here, but I think that they're pretty safe presumptions. He probably, at that time, he probably felt under the total control of Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm presuming that he quite possibly could have wondered where God was in all of this and why was he allowing this to happen. He was most likely focused on the circumstances that he was experiencing as a personal difficulty in his life and not considering that there might have been within the circumstances here, a blessing outside of himself. I'm confident that he never would have chosen those circumstances for himself. See, he didn't realize at the time that the trials and the difficulties that he and those around him were experiencing, he didn't realize that they were serving a greater kingdom purpose. He wasn't considering that, that that through his suffering, that God would, many years later, save his people from annihilation. He wasn't considering that because he didn't know that that was what was happening. He didn't know. We should consider this and apply this in our own lives when we face trials and difficulties. See, we are always tempted and many times give in to the temptation to look at our circumstances, to look at, at, at our situation only from the perspective of how it affects us, of how it corresponds or conflicts with our own will for our life. Well, the Lord wants us to develop. He wants to develop in us a far more kingdom-oriented way of looking at the trials and the difficulties in our own lives. Now, you know, the Lord might not be actively working to save his people from annihilation through the trials and difficulties in your life or in my life right now. But we can be sure that he always has a kingdom-oriented purpose in them, in those difficulties. We might not always know or understand that purpose. In fact, the majority of the time, we probably don't. And I'll make it even worse for you. We probably won't until 
we enter into eternity with him. But we can always be sure his purpose is there. I want to quote the Lord Jesus here and ask you, remember these words from Luke twenty-two forty-two. The Lord Jesus speaking, crying out to his father. He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And then these infamous words, these really comforting words, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is how the Lord wants us to live our lives. All right, let's move on to verses 7 and 8. It says, He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. So here now we are introduced to Esther. We're introduced to her first by her Hebrew name, Hadassah, then by her non-Hebrew name, Esther. The name Esther, it, it, um, it did have a Persian connection and meaning, so most likely it was, it was probably a name that she had adopted to better assimilate into Persian culture. She was Mordecai's cousin, that is, the daughter of his uncle. He was bringing her up or raising her as his own daughter because both of her parents had died. We're not told how or when they died, just that she was an orphan and that Mordecai had taken her in. This certainly explains Esther's daughter-like obedience and submission to Mordecai. And the description of Esther here leaves no room for mistake. She was a beautiful girl from head to toe. The details of her exceptional beauty, they're important because this is undoubtedly what first captured the king's attention. When the, um, when the beautiful young virgins from throughout the Persian Empire were gathered, gathered together and taken to the capital city and placed in the, in the custody of Haggai, Esther was included in this gathering because of her exceptional beauty. The description of Esther in the original Hebrew conveys that her beauty was indeed exceptional, that it really far surpassed the beauty of any of the other young maidens being collected. The English translation here 
I don't think really captures that accurately. My understanding of the, the original, uh, original language description of her beauty brings to my mind, personally, the word breathtaking. You know, that's a word that I would personally reserve to describe someone of truly exceptional, maybe even unique beauty. And that's what Esther was. She was exceptional in her beauty. I mean, uh, like, like we've, we've discussed, all of the young ladies who were being gathered for the king, they were all beautiful. But Esther was exceptional. But what we need to keep in mind at this point in the story, we will, as we will begin to learn in our next studies, is that Esther's beauty is far more than just skin deep. She's an exceptional young woman. Now, uh, before we close the study for tonight, I want to consider one more time, and just kind of give it a little bit more detail here, God behind the scenes. In our, I think it was our very first study, I brought this out that, that God is not mentioned one time specifically throughout the entire book of Esther. Not one time. But he is active. He is at work behind the scenes all through the book of Esther. I would even go so far as to say that he is in every word in the book of Esther. Think of all the details and how God has orchestrated bringing Mordecai and Esther into this place at, at this time, at this specific time in history. I just want to name a few here. But think about their time in history, Esther and Mordecai. If they had lived any other time, all of this would not have happened. That's not coincidence. Think about their heritage as Jews. The exile of the Jews to Babylon. This was generations before the death of Esther's parents. Mordecai being ready, willing, and able to adopt Esther. And then the relationship between Mordecai and Esther. This type of relationship is not guaranteed. It's not an absolute slam dunk in these types of situations. Yet, they had this type of relationship. And then, once again, let's consider Esther's beauty, her physical, exceptional beauty. Did she just happen to be a really, really pretty girl? Well, she was, but there's more to that than just simply her being a pretty girl. All of these details and more serve God's purpose in his kingdom, in the lives of his people, and in his plan to save his people from annihilation. I want to encourage each one of us tonight and always, 
Remember in all of your circumstances that he is, the Lord is every bit as involved in our lives today as he was in Mordecai's and Esther's lives then in all of our circumstances. The pleasant ones, the unpleasant ones, the difficult ones, he is involved in them all. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the amazing way you worked in Mordecai's life and in Esther's life to bring about your will and your purpose. Thank you for that. Thank you for recording that for us. And I pray, Father, please give to each of us grace to think about this story, to remember this story, and to remember that you work in our lives in the same way. That you are there, that you are in control in all of our circumstances, even when it's behind the scenes. Thank you for it all, Father. Amen.